Washington, D.C., this is On the Ground. From the new Cold War to voting rights to guns to labor rights, this is an inflection point for American politics and for human rights. We hear voices of Amazon workers organizing for a union in Bessemer, Alabama. The people are not taking this anymore. It is time out. This is a new day and age, and we're not just going to accept the bread from the table. We want some meat, too, amen? And for this month's look at culture and media, journalist John Jeter wonders if the American Rescue Plan is all that is cranked up to be. That's really overselling this stimulus bill, which I'm tempted to say that it is tantamount to rearranging the deck chairs on the Titanic. It's a little bit better than that, but not that much. It's certainly not transformative, if only because it's temporary. All that, Gerald Horn is in the house and much more coming up. Welcome to On the Ground, onthegroundshow.org, Voices of Resistance from the nation's capital. I'm Esther Ivarum. Well, there is so much action and activism and resistance here in Washington. What is that list I just mentioned? Voting rights after two horrific mass shootings within a week. There's the issue of guns in our country. There's help needed for child refugees at the southern border. There is a fight for a union at Amazon. But in a situation like this, let's first follow the money. And that means the 65% of the federal discretionary budget, the more than $750 billion that go annually for war, Cold War, militarism, and occupation around the world. In his first press conference since taking office, President Biden seemed to dial back the belligerent tone of his diplomats in Alaska last week, but still assumes the posture of American exceptionalism. And so to help us sort out this first piece is the author and activist, Professor Gerald Horn, the Morris Professor of History and African-American Studies at the University of Houston, our geopolitical analyst. Welcome back to the show, Gerald. Thank you. Well, I wanted to just ask you first about your reflections on listening to the speech and particularly his comments on China and foreign policy. Well, the comments on China are quite disturbing, particularly in light of the blow-up at the Alaska summit a few days ago. Uh, He referred to President Xi Jinping in very personal terms, saying that he doesn't have a democratic bone in his body. That's building upon his earlier characterization of the Chinese leader as a so-called thug. What's interesting is this is taking place against a wider landscape. The Washington Examiner which is a conservative publication in in your city, has been running a series about a war with China. James Stavridis, who is a retired admiral and a so-called defense intellectual, has written a novel about, you guessed it, war with China. And what's interesting is that Taiwan, the rebel province off the coast of China, is the flashpoint. And even the Financial Times of London, which tends to be more sober and realistic, just recently wrote 
a rather large piece about this Taiwan Semiconductor Corporation, which has a stranglehold on the production of microchips globally. And of course, since cars oftentimes nowadays are just computers on wheels, not to mention the iPhones, which many people carry in their pockets, all dependent upon microchips, there's this nightmare scenario that China will invade Taiwan and therefore have a stranglehold over microchip production as well. I also should point out that the Atlantic Council, which is a conservative think tank, has put out a long analysis of U.S.-China relations, and what it recommends is that the United States should go after President Xi Jinping personally, just as Mr. Biden is doing. The other recommendation, I'm going to be looking for signs, but I don't think it's realistic. They're suggesting that the United States should warm up relations with Russia and to break the alliance that is developing between Russia and China. I think there's too much anti-Moscow sentiment in this country across the ideological spectrum for that to be realistic, but stay tuned. Wow. Well, I know I could probably get way into the weeds on that subject. I'm particularly thinking about a speech given here in D.C. by Professor Anthony Montero on the 100th anniversary of the Russian Revolution. And one of the things he said was that how Russia, Russians wanted to be white, you know, and they wanted to be a part of kind of the European project. And I'm wondering if somehow the United States was able to reverse its very bellicose, belligerent attitude toward Moscow, whether the population at least would be like, yeah, please, please take us back. We want to be a part of the white people. Well, I was just reading a poll from Russia just this morning that suggested that younger people are turning their backs on the European Union because the European Union has such hostility towards Russia. And like many in the world, many people in Russia see China as the future. They see the North Atlantic bloc in terminal decline. So I'm not sure if the United States can effectuate that pivot towards Moscow because as noted, left, right, and center in the United States, there is rampant hostility towards Russia. And I don't see that ending anytime soon. And and actually, before we before we leave foreign policy, I just thought it was very interesting that he uh, he and his whole administration is dancing around the whole culpability that he and former President Obama have in terms of creating this crisis in what they call the Northern Triangle area, including Honduras and Guatemala, where so many of the people streaming to the border are coming from. I mean, after all, it was under his watch and I think under his particular responsibility, not in addition to former Secretary of State Hillary Clinton, in terms of fomenting a, a coup in Honduras that brought this current administration there that, uh, you know, many people consider just to be kind of this narco kleptocracy. So, and tremendous violence, tremendous corruption there, and people are fleeing in droves. So, I just found it very interesting that these types of points aren't really brought out by our corporate media. No one in that room is asking these questions. Instead, all of the onus is put on these people, who, largely children, you know, young people, you know, streaming across the border. And just the lack of historical memory, the, the lack of any type of history 
playing out in these press conferences is really frustrating for me. Well, I understand your point of view, which is spot on, because as you just suggested, it was under the Obama-Biden administration with Secretary of State Hillary Rodham Clinton in the driver's seat that a coup was effectuated in Honduras that has brought to power the present leader. And according to a trial that is winding up in Manhattan, as we speak, the president of Honduras has been implicated directly in drug dealing and, in fact, was quoted as suggesting that he would like to see more cocaine go up the nostrils of U.S. nationals. And this is the man that Washington, particularly Senator Clinton, Secretary of State Clinton, and Vice President Biden and President Obama helped to put into office. Well, we have a lot to sort through here in D.C. I'm glad that I can have these conversations with you and you can help us sort it out. I've been speaking to on-the-ground geopolitical analyst Professor Gerald Horn. Thank you for joining me today, Gerald. Thank you. In other national news, Georgia just passed super voter suppression laws, and Georgia State Legislator Park Cannon was handcuffed and arrested while protesting Thursday night. So, as 250 similar laws to restrict voting are being considered around the country, passage of the For the People Act has become more urgent in Congress, so much so that there is even discussion about reforming the Senate filibuster to make it a law. But while important provisions in in the For the People Act will protect voting rights and voting access, some provisions will also make it more difficult for third parties to grow and compete against the two corporate parties, the Democrats and the Republicans. This poison pill that I'm describing seems to be specifically taking aim at the Green Party, which uses public funding for their campaigns. The For the People Act, also known as H.R. 1 or S. 1, quintuples the amount of money Green Party presidential campaigns will be required to raise to qualify for federal matching funds from just $5,000 in each of 20 states to $25,000 per state. So, writing for the online publication Maryland Matters, former chair of the Green Party, Michael Feinstein, said, quote, the real, the real world effect of eliminating the existing one-to-one threshold would be to eliminate a matching funds threshold that is demonstrably reachable by minor party candidates and replace it with a category reachable likely only by top-tier majority party candidates, end quote. So the Green Party has an email campaign on their website so you can oppose these parts of the, the law and request an amendment to remedy it. The Green Party and other parties, such as the the Movement for a People's Party, they note that these proposals are included in this proposed law, just as recent polls say that as many as 62% of Americans say the country needs a third party. Now, national news about the rights of working people. First, the David versus Goliath struggle for union rights at Amazon. Thomas O'Rourke has more. 
On March 30th, the National Labor Relations Board begins counting ballots cast by workers in the union election at Amazon in Bessemer, Alabama, which could bring the first union to an Amazon warehouse in the United States. More than 5,800 workers at the Amazon BHM-1 facility are voting for or against reunion representation by the Retail, Wholesale, and Department Store Union. Workers began voting by mail seven weeks ago after the union successfully won a mail-in voting dispute to ensure as high a participation rate as possible in the face of COVID fears and restrictions. The company has fought off labor organizing at the company for decades, but bolstered by organizing in Bessemer, workers in Baltimore, New Orleans, Portland, Denver, and Southern California are now also considering union drives. This could mark a reversal of a long-term decline in unionization rates. Amazon resists unions with hardball tactics, including holding mandatory captive audience meetings, legally obliged to stop the day before voting begins, intrusive text messages four or five times daily, and even anti-union signs placed in bathroom stalls at strategic eye levels. Amazon hired for this campaign the anti-union law firm Morgan Lewis & Bocius, which they used seven years ago to help defeat a union drive at a Delaware warehouse. A more sinister tactic signaling Amazon's sway over government traffic and postal regulation, the county changed the timing of traffic lights around the facility to prevent long waiting lines of cars trying to enter employee parking lots. This stifles organizers communicating with workers. Organizers have been barred from company property, including parking lots. Additionally, a U.S. post box near the surveilled employee entrance was installed on the second day of voting as a signal to workers to mail their ballots via that box, the control of which is still unclear since the local post office has not responded to inquiries. Worker grievances include safety concerns stemming from not enough COVID precautions, in addition to overheated facilities, the lack of adequate bathroom breaks, and overly aggressive performance targets for workers. During a Poor People's Campaign event supporting the union drive, SEIU President Mary Kay Henry said this. The two million members of SEIU and the millions more fighting for 15 and a union have a message to the Bessemer workers. You are courageous, you are fearless, and you are already winning. You have risen up against the world's most powerful corporation owned by the world's richest man, and you're doing it in a state that has a history of siding with corporations over working people. As Election Day has approached, Bessemer workers have been visited by all manner of Democratic Party politicians, celebrity actors, and rappers, including Bernie Sanders, Nina Turner, Danny Glover, and Killer Mike. Even President Biden issued a statement signaling his support of labor laws guaranteeing union rights, though he stopped short of calling for a union victory. For On the Ground, this is Thomas O'Rourke. And as President Biden presses for public schools to reopen, teachers have questions about new CDC guidelines. Chantel James has the latest. As the CDC recently released updated guidelines that schools can reopen if a distance of three feet is maintained between students, 
Teachers' unions are disputing whether the guidance comes out of safety or a rush to reopen. National Education Association President Becky Pringle has asked the CDC for clarification and more detail on the dramatic adjustments of the guidance for social distance from six to three feet. As DC schools join nationwide reopening trends, the goal, according to DC Reopen Strong, was to be able to serve 30% of students in person. Randy Weingarten, president of the American Federation of Teachers, gave her union's perspective on relaxed guidelines. The issue is that this is being driven by space concerns, not by safety concerns. And when that happens, we have to see what it means. And frankly, in so many of the places that I represent, meaning urban places that have just now recently reopened, because they don't have great ventilation, the de-densification of classrooms was really important if you had a lot of bodies in a room. And so, you know, the CDC is saying that all these other mitigation factors have to stay there, including good ventilation, which 40% of the schools don't have, including mask wearing, which Texas and Florida and others are not doing. And so the teachers are being vaccinated. That's really good. But I worry with the new variants, what's going to happen in terms of transmissibility with kids and with their families. So we got to read the studies. We got to see what it really means. And I just hope this is not a rush to put in twice as many deaths in a place where we're really starting to get things reopened. The changes to the CDC's guidelines come as efforts to rapidly vaccinate ramp up nationwide and in the context of President Biden's stated aim to reopen schools. For On the Ground, this is Chantal James. In Black Lives Matter news, there's a major victory for activists in Denver. An Adams County judge threw out attempted kidnapping charges Thursday against three members of the Party for Socialism and Liberation who were arrested for their roles in leading an Elijah McClain protest last summer outside an Aurora police precinct. In a rare ruling, Judge Leroy Kirby dismissed the Class Three felony charges against Lillian House, 26, Whitney Lucero, 23, and Joel Northam, 33, following a preliminary hearing that took place March 9th and March 16th. Preliminary hearings are conducted to determine whether there is probable cause to support serious charges, and the standard prosecutors must meet is lower than at a trial. In most cases, judge find there is sufficient evidence to proceed to trial. The activists are still facing lesser charges for leading all peaceful protests, and a national support movement for them is online at denverdefense.org. Virginia has outlawed the death penalty. Governor Ralph Northam signed a bill Wednesday banning executions, making Virginia the first of the Confederate states to do so. Over the past 400 years, Virginia executed more prisoners than any other state. In the modern era, it is second only to Texas in the number of people killed. And in D.C., where affordable housing is becoming ever more scarce, the residents of Brooklyn Manor, 
apartment complex aren't giving up their fight to keep their homes. Lydia Curtis has the latest. Residents of affordable housing in D.C. and their supporters are demanding that the D.C. Council look closely at a series of recent and upcoming decisions that they say would result in D.C. residents having less input in zoning decisions and leave them more vulnerable for displacement. On March 18th, dozens of residents testified before the council demanding that the district's Office of Zoning and the Office of Planning reject a proposal by the developer Mid-City to change the land use map of the Brookland Manor neighborhood without a public process. When a land use map is changed to permit more density, it is called upflumming. Ms. Jillian Burford of Servier City, who is supporting Brookland Manor, had this to say. I am begging that the council rejects Mid-City's proposal to upflum the land at Brooklyn Manor. Predatory evictions are running rampant with folks losing their housing over $25 fines in the same way that we've heard stories of seniors losing their homes owing as low as $30 across the city. Brooklyn Manor residents deserve better and the council needs to step up and stand up. There is a deep-seated trauma and displacement and constant movement. Low-income resident communities deserve to be valued and respected as much as any other community. If we're constantly talking about racial equity in the district, where is it today? Office of Planning Director Andrew Trueblood said that there would still be a public process and that he hoped to see more planned unit development, but activists remain skeptical. There is an organized effort on the ground at Brookland Manor to fight displacement and other policies that residents say are designed to worsen their living conditions and drive them out. To help, email brooklandmanorcoalition at gmail.com and visit their Facebook page. For On the Ground, this is Lydia Curtis. And finally, in culture and media, Saturday, March 27th, is a National Day of Action in 60 cities demanding an end to anti-Asian racist violence and an end to violence against women and an end to white supremacy now. In D.C., the Answer Coalition, Code Pink, the Poor People's Campaign, and other organizations are inviting the public to join them at 2 p.m. at the Friendship Archway near 7th and 8th Street Northwest in Chinatown. A complete listing of all actions across the country and more information is at AnswerCoalition.org. And those are headlines and happenings. Stay with us. When I was growing up, I was taught in American history books that Africa had no history, and neither did I. That I was a savage, about whom the less said the better, who had been saved by Europe and brought to America. And of course, I believed it. I didn't have much choice. Fire with fire, I know, but at least we can turn 
All right, all right. It's great to see everybody's coming out to support the movement that we have going on right now. It's beautiful just to see people, how they want to come out and help. And um, I got a couple workers here from Amazon, and I want to introduce the first one. The first lady that I'm going to call up is a great leader. Amazon, Bezos, OMG. He's just horrible and i'm ready for more wages better wages we want better time at work we want to go to the bathroom at work how could you work for somebody that's trillion billion whatever you want to call it how can you work for them they don't want you to go to the bathroom if i go to the bathroom it's going to take me five minutes to get there when i get there that don't necessarily mean I'm just going to use it, and it may take me longer. If I stay gone 15 minutes in the bathroom, which is 20 plus, you know, the five to get there, and then I got to walk another five to get back. So that's 25 minutes. I'm gone from a machine. When I get back, it's a, a note across the scene saying, HR needs to talk to you. I'm like, what did I do? I just went to the bathroom. You get to HR. Well, Linda, you're a time on task. You got 25 minutes away. I was like, well, I just went to the bathroom. Somebody is supposed to come and relieve me while I go to the bathroom. We have an A-done light that we cut on. When we cut it on, it's a big machine, a big computer. We'll let them know to go to this machine here or to go to this machine here. They'll walk by, they'll look at it, and they'll let you stand there. And when you go to the bathroom, once again, you're going to get fired when you come back. Oh. They took our hazardous pay away. Why? Because we have COVID cases every week. Every week. I caught COVID in Amazon. My mom. My mom. They paid me for two weeks. I was out three weeks. They didn't pay me for the third week. Wow. I said, okay. Upon that, I had to get a second job to make ends meet. I'm in school for nursing. I graduated in uh, June. With that being said, I'm ready to fight. I am tired. I want everybody to hear me. Uh We're in this together. If I have to come to Missouri, Cleveland, California, I'm fighting for everybody, not just me. It's not all about me. It's for everybody. And I'm ready. We got to fight for our right. Yeah. That's right. All right, all right, Miss Linda. All right, all right, Miss Linda. All right, y'all. Y'all just heard from Miss Linda Barnes, a dedicated worker at Amazon. I have another speaker here from Amazon, and uh, his name is Emmett. And I'm, we're gonna uh, let Emmett come up right now and let give you a piece of his story. Yeah. Woo! Come on, Emmett. Wow. <laughs> Who would have thought all this would be this big? <laughs> I work for Amazon and I see a lot of people there. A lot of people who are frustrated. A lot of people who are tired. A lot of people who have no other option. And their conditions aren't what they need to be. It's not the conditions that they deserve. And we have to fight 
Well, yes, this is happen at, happening at Amazon today, but it's not just Amazon. It's all the other giants out there, too, who are not treating their workers the way they should be. We have to not settle for what has been given to us, but demand what we deserve. And we cannot sit by and let our fellow man be taken advantage of. There's so much out there for everyone. There's enough for everyone, yet it's not given to us. And that is not right. We cannot continue like this, and we won't continue like this. And America says we will not continue like this. We are in this together, not just in Alabama, but across the country. And we have to continue fighting. No matter what happens with this vote, the bell has been rung, and it won't stop here. It'll continue from sea to shining sea. We will not be, we will not be let down. No, we won't. There's a lot more of us than they expect, and we will not be silent anymore. So thank you. I didn't know that this would be so big. And stepping out here today for the rest of my coworkers is an honor, and it's my responsibility. So thank you for all the support. Thank you for helping us change the country. Thank you for what is to come in the future. Uh-huh. We couldn't do it with we couldn't do it by ourselves, but together we can. Yes. So all thank right, you, bro. thank you. That's all I have to say today. Right. <laughs> I am so pleased that when we extended an invitation to our next speaker, he eagerly said yes. And that is Reverend Dr. William J. Barber II, who is president and senior lecturer for the repairs of the breach and co-chair of the Poor People's Campaign a national call for more revival. I want to first of all start by inviting some of the workers just to come a little closer with a placard. See, because what's important, particularly in the South, that folk understand, understand, and I was going to ask this before I say a word, and you all can just holler back the answer. Do you have black people organizing in this fight? Yes or no? Do you have white people organizing? Do you have brown people organizing? Do you have Asian people organizing? I want the nation to hear that, particularly as we come here from Alabama. And the invitation came. I don't even know how to say. You can't say no. And what we want to be clear is the reason we're here today. And But folk have decided that it's time to nationalize Bessemer, yeah, yeah. right? That we, we see, we don't believe change comes from DC down. Change comes from Birmingham up. Change comes from Bessemer up. Change comes from Alabama up. That's the movement. And it's time to nationalize this movement and help folk understand how this is their fight, but it's our fight. I want you also to know that we come here in, in a context. In Alabama, yeah. over 900,000 people Uh are poor and low wealth, 900,000, the seventh highest in the nation. I want to invite the pastor, because I'm a pastor. If he's standing with this brother was with me when we were in Winston-Salem. Uh, he's real deal. He comes from Alabama. So if he would join and stand here with us, I want you to know uh, national media and local media, even 450,000 people in Alabama don't have health care. That's right. Because Alabama has been one of those states that's refused to just do something as simple as expand Medicaid. Uh, Alabama has the worst voting laws. In fact, it was the Shelby case 
that started here, that gutted the Voting Rights Act. It's important that we understand the context is the context. And one of the things we're coming here today is to say to, to Jeff uh, Bezos and to the bosses over at the Amazon plant, listen, we told Jeff Clark to call off the dogs on Selma. We need you to call off these union-busting dogs. Yes, yes. We need you to call off these union-busting people that you have hired that are trying to stop people from voting. If it's an insult anywhere, it's surely an insult in Alabama to literally try to lie and undermine people's right to vote, right? But I also want you to know that we know this. This is something we know, that strengthening the labor movement in the South is critical to any effort to transform this country. You cannot transform America and bring healing to America until you transform labor in the South and unions are essential for poor and low wealth working people to build and demonstrate power. Secondly, we want people to be very clear, Carol, is that the union fight and the fight for voting rights and the fight against voter suppression is the same fight. Because all of those fights are fights to bring black, white, brown, Asian, native, and poor and low wealth people together in the South. And one third of all poor people live in the South. Poor and low wealth in the South. One third of all poor and low wealth white people live in the South. In his book, uh, The Strange Career of Jim Crow, uh, the historian C. Van Woodard noted that segregation, let me teach you a little history and come to this moment, was really segregation was a political strategy employed by the wealthy interests of the South to keep the Southern masses of black and white folk divided so that they could keep the labor cheap. It wasn't just segregated because you don't like black people. Tahishi Coates teaches us that race is the child of racism. Racism comes first. And what racism is at its core is not just a hatred for black people, but it's a hatred of humanity. It is a, it, and, and it is an economic strategy yeah. to keep people divided so that a few can have all they want. You got to understand, you cannot have a conversation about racial justice without talking about economic justice. You can't have a conversation about stopping voter suppression without stopping union busting. Because they come from the same core. That's why 56 years, 56 years ago, this week, this week, 56 years ago, at the end of the Selma to Montgomery march, guess what? Dr. King connected the fight for voting rights and the fight for labor rights. Yeah. Now, a lot of people don't talk about yeah. that. Yeah. They think Selma was just about voting rights. Right. But when Dr. King got to Montgomery, stood on those steps, this is what he said. The threat of the free exercise of the ballot by the Negro and white masses is what created a segregated society. This is what happened when the Negro and white masses of the South threatened to unite and build a great society, a society where greed and poverty would be done away with. The battle to suppress the vote and the battle to suppress labor rights has been the tactic used by the Southern white aristocracy to hold on to their money. Say that. And it's still true. It's true. The same money it's true. 
that's behind voter suppression is behind blocking labor rights. And we need to understand that. And so this is the first viable attempt to form a union at Amazon in the United States. You all are first, just like those folk were first to cross that bridge. This is not just Bessemer. This is the world. Bessemer is now our film. Amen. Huh. Yeah. Yeah. Huh? Yeah. This is the first attempt in the Amazon, in the United States, to unionize. And 6,000 of you have been called to mail in your ballots. And the National Labor Relations Board said this has to happen. They can't block it. They, if they, they're trying to suppress it, but the only way they can block it is you don't vote. Listen now. It's the only way. Right. And I want to thank the retail wholesaling department store union and, and all of you who are here. Now, here's what's at stake. All the workers at the Amazon plant and any plant that's not unionized, but let's talk about this one, are at will employees. Means they can be fired at the wheel of the boss. No just cause. But if you have a union, you become just cause employees. You shift. Right now you're at will. When the union, it becomes just cause. They have to have a just cause in order to fire them. Furthermore, you can call on the union to help mediate and file charges on behalf of the worker. Now, Amazon said last year, and I, I've got to talk about this because some folk not going to like it, but, you know, so what? Uh, <laughs> I'm too old to lie now. And uh, Beso, Bezos last year said he was concerned about Black Lives Matter. That's what he said. And to show his concern, he said he was going to give $10 million to black organizations. Chump chain. Yeah. Yeah. And he was going to organize up groups to give some millions of dollars to organizations. I want to say today that Amazon doesn't care about black lives if you give chump change to black organizations, but then block union and labor rights for the workers right here in Bessemer. Don't, don't, don't play with us like that. In fact, every national organization that is taking money from Jeff Bezos ought to give it back until he stops the attack on these workers. Eighty-five percent of the workers at this at this plant are black. Five thousand eight hundred. Rest are white and Latino. But don't play with us. You don't go. You don't. You can't give us thirty pieces of silver. And then undermine and say you care about black folk. You care about black folk, let them have labor rights. Care about black folk, let them have sick leave and health care. You care about black folk, don't pay a woman two weeks when she needs three weeks because she got sick in your plant. Jeff Bezos has seen his personal wealth skyrocket from $113 billion to $189 billion during COVID. Uh-huh. Here's what that means. Eight million more poor people went into poverty during COVID. But Jeff Bezos made money. Billionaires made a trillion and a half dollars during COVID. You're right. Trillion and a half dollars during COVID. 20,000 Amazon employees got COVID by October of 2020. And then, you know what the company did? This company that claims, and I'm through, this company that claims that it needs, it cares so much. They cut hazard pay while they were increasing the hourly work. Now, we have we have a phrase for that. I'm a preacher, but we have a phrase for that. And, I, and Jesus used the word, so I can use it. That's a damn shame. Uh, 
That same thing Jesus said to that fig tree yeah, yeah. when that fig tree was pr putting on like it was a fig tree, but it wasn't producing any figs. Yeah. Jesus said, I damn you because you're putting on to, to say you care about folk and and, and 20,000 of your employees catch COVID and then you give them a little bit of hazard pay. And then as soon as folk not watching, you take it back while at the same time you're increasing their work. And that would have never happened if you had the union. But not only that, Amazon has tried to do everything they could. They send mass text messages out. Y'all need to know this in the nation. You know, we mad about what Trump did with text messages. You all see what Amazon doing. Huh? They send messages out with lies, claim it's going to cost jobs. Then they make the workers go to classes and then the instructors try to scare the workers. And then when the workers don't know the truth and stand up and say, no, that's not true. They call them to the front of the class and take a picture of their badge. Uh -huh. Their worker. Uh -huh. That's what's happening right here uh -huh. in Alabama. Uh -huh. And Alabama already knows that. That's the kind of foolishness they did back in the days of the civil rights movement. Intimidation. Yeah. And then lastly, 19 workers, as I said, have died. The workers need a union and a contract. The movement doesn't end with March 29th. The movement gets another spark. Truth of the matter is you win this battle here, it opens up the whole South. You are going to win. And you win here, it's going to be just as big as when they won going across that bridge. Because it's going to open up the whole conversation again and the whole action around connecting the battle against racism and the battle against denying people labor rights and unions. So you are here today a part of a movement that Dr. King foresaw 56 years ago. When he said it, he said it on those out on that step so that, that whenever we figure out that the whole goal of racism is to keep the poor white masses and poor black masses and brown masses separated. And if we figure out, as you are doing here, that we aren't going to be separated anymore and you win, this is the kind of fusion coalition that can change the South. It did it before and it can do it again. And what you are doing here is showing the nation how to build the kind of power that's necessary to raise the 140 million poor and low wealth people up out of poverty for real, for real. And to get the 87 million people health care. This is a part of America's third reconstruction. Yes. Yes. You are not just workers in a small plant in Bessemer. Uh -huh. Nobody really knew the name of Selma 56 years ago. That's right. Nobody didn't really know it. But when God got through, hey, when the people got through, when they organized black and white and brown together and they wouldn't let anything turn them back and they won ever since then and until the end of time forever and a day, people know the name Selma. You winning, people will know the name Bessemer and the Bessemer 6000. And your name will give people courage to fight all over this country. And if when we change the South, we change the nation. Yes, we will. You want healing to come? Yeah. Establish justice in right the here. South. Right here. right here. And then we can be insured of domestic tranquility. 
So I just wanted to come to stand with you, not to talk for you, but to stand with you and to help the nation to understand, to say to the nation, this is a national issue. Yes. It just happens to be located once again in the heart of the South. The birth of the South. In Alabama. Yes, sir. Alabama, you did it before. Yeah. Hmm? Yeah. They yeah. tried they, they tried to rock your boat oh, with officers on horseback. Uh-huh. But you did it before. Yeah. They tried to stop you with dogs. Don't you see? But you did it before. Yeah. They shot some of you, but you did it before. Listen, listen. Uh, they had a governor that said segregation yesterday, the day in the mod did it before. Yeah. Jeff Bezos really ain't your problem. Because you face worse. Yeah. Like yeah. David in the Bible, you've already faced the bears and the lions. A uh, 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 Goliath ain't really that much. Because no matter how big a man is, he ain't stronger than a lion That's right. or a bear. So you've already proven what you can do. All you need to do is just do it one more time. God bless you. You have been listening to Amazon workers and the Reverend William Barber rallying to support the vote for a union at the Amazon warehouse in Bessemer, Alabama. The rally was on March 22nd, part of the Moral Mondays part of the Moral Mondays Days of Action. This is On the Ground. Stay with us. This is On the Ground, onthegroundshow.org, Voices of Resistance from the nation's capital. I'm Esther Ivarum. And for this month's extended segment on culture and media, I'm joined again by John Jeter, former foreign bureau chief for the Washington Post, two-time Pulitzer Prize finalist and author of Flat Broke in the Free Market, How Globalization Fleece Working People. He joins us from Limon, Costa Rica. Welcome back to the show, John. Thank you for having me, Esther. Well, I have a few media headlines before we get to our conversation. I think the biggest media story is still the expose by Max Blumenthal in the gray zone. I spoke to him earlier this month, and he cites newly leaked documents revealing how the vaunted BBC, the British Broadcasting Corporation, and the news service Reuters participated in a massive government-run anti-Russia propaganda operation. So these are documents... No one's disputing them. I know I've worked with people in the newsroom and I know you have people who've gotten these beats like the State Department, DOD, and, you know, maybe, maybe even a foreign correspondent. And you know that they really believe in imperialism. You know that they hate Russia. They hate Iran. Whatever the, the task is or whatever the assignment is that they fit ideologically into that job. But to see that these news organizations actually had a contract to spew Russia-phobic coverage was really something. There's a hysteria going on now, I think, in the West generally, and here in the United States specifically, but in the West. And the fear is that, uh, you know, it's becoming, again, a multipolar world. And so you see the media and all of our institutions really resorting to these really desperate measures things that would have been unheard of 
you know, just 25 years ago. And this is, this is just, I mean, this is absurd. It's just okay. absurd. Anyway, so those are some of the media headlines that I have, and maybe we can get to some at the end. But I know you want to talk about coverage of this $1.9 trillion COVID relief package and how it may not be all that it is touted to be. To put it mildly, I think, you know, as everyone knows, President Biden signed, I think it was two weeks ago now, the $1.9 trillion COVID relief package. And what has really surprised me is the sort of overwhelming championing of this bill, this legislation, as a transformative piece of legislation compared by many pundits, economists, and even uh, Senator Bernie Sanders himself as a Keynesian jumpstart to the economy, very similar to what the New Deal was. Here we have the economist Stephanie Kelton, who was an advisor to Senator Sanders during his presidential campaign. She's appearing on Democracy Now! last week. Senator Sanders said it exactly right. Uh, This is a piece of legislation that recognizes the immense pain that exists all across this country, and it delivers help. I mean, President Biden has said help is on the way, and this piece of legislation is absolutely going to change the lives of tens of millions of people in this country, people who, for the first time in their lives, are going to see more money in their bank account at one time. They're going to be able to pay all of the bills that they have instead of trying to figure out which one to put off this month and how to try to catch up later. The legislation is groundbreaking. There's no question about it. And yes, it didn't include everything that progressives had hoped would be in this bill, but there is no denying that this is a major, major victory for the party and for many progressives who um, pushed very hard to make sure that the legislation sent the relief exactly where it was most needed. Okay, yeah, so that's Stephanie Kelton. Yes, so I would argue that Ms. Kelton, if she chose, would be a brilliant car salesman. That's really overselling this stimulus bill, which I'm tempted to say that it is tantamount to rearranging the deck chairs on the Titanic. It's a little bit better than that, but not that much. It's certainly not transformative if only because it's temporary. It's set to expire at the end of the year. So just by that yardstick, I fail to see how it could be transformative. But even more importantly, it doesn't address the basic weaknesses in our economy, which has been building for the last 40 to 45 years. And that is, we don't make anything of value. We don't have a real productive sector of our economy. And therefore, we don't create wealth. We simply extract it. This bill does nothing to address that fact. In fact, what it does, if you really take a look at it, is it does exactly what the IMF bailout of Greece did a few years ago, which is it gives people money to pay their bills. There's no growth there. There's no growth trajectory there. It's simply almost a survivalist mode. But uh, it seems like the Democrats and the press and the media have all gotten on the same page and have tried to convince the American people to believe not their lying eyes, but these experts, many of them Democrats, who know better than we do, right? They know that this piece of legislation, they say it's going to reduce child poverty by half. I I don't know how it could do that, but even if it did, uh, it would only be for the year. There's some optimism, I guess, or at least some hope that this legislation, or at least parts of it, the child tax credit, 
would be extended. But I'm not sure that's even reasonable. So I just find this to be sort of curious, really, the selling of the stimulus bill, which is good, but far from great. This bill reminds me of this theater that happens in D.C. where people are in crisis and there's something that there are things that people need. On the other hand, there is something that is the best that the Democrats can do. Right. And they convince themselves that the best that they can do or the best that they think they can do is actually meeting that need. <laughs> you know? when yes, I do. What the economy lacks is buying power. You know, an economy without buying power is like a knee without cartilage, right? It can't bend. It's dysfunctional. And that's what we have. And this bill doesn't is not going to restore buying power. The, the question is, what are we going to do to restore the productive sectors of our economy? And there's no discussion about that. I, I don't know Senator Sanders personally, and I don't know a lot of these people, but uh, I find it an exercise in sophistry to suggest that this is a transformative piece of legislation. It's nothing of the sort. So just two things before we move on. This week, Representative Rashida Tlaib and Pramila Jayapal, they I should say reintroduced something that I know Tlaib talked about a year ago. And that is this minting a like a trillion dollar coin and minting as many of them as needed to deposit with the Fed that would produce enough funds for everyone to have like a basic income. And so and rather than talking about a one time check of fourteen hundred dollars, you might be talking about everyone having a thousand or two thousand dollars a month instead of you know, this one check, which is going to go just like that. Poof, right? This is called the Automatic Boost for Communities Act, ABC. And it would direct the Treasury Department to use its legal authority to mint as many $1 trillion platinum coins as necessary to fund the legislation. And it would continue until a year after the public health emergency ends or the unemployment rate stabilizes at a low level. That's one thing. The other thing is that I keep seeing coverage of how the next big thing that Biden is going to do is try to do an infrastructure plan. So maybe that might begin to address some of the manufacturing or jobs where we're actually doing things to uh, repair our crumbling infrastructure, to try to help the economy transition to more renewable energy. So that might be something out there to look at, to watch for, John. I think that's a great idea. I mean, there's no magic bullet for this. I mean, we're 40 years into this experiment that no country in the world has ever really taken on before, at least in terms of uh, you know, the, the most industrialized country in the history of the world moving into a post-industrial phase. So there's no magic bullet to reverse that, to put the genie back in the bottle. But the more we can do to talk about really... And this is not just blacks, but I think, you know, specifically blacks, but really the entire population, or at least the 99 percent. Anything we can do to decolonize and decarbonize. Those are the goalposts. Right. So basic income grant. I think we should talk about worker co-ops. I think we should talk about a Robin Hood tax on financial transactions. There's a whole slew of things that we can start to talk about to at least get the ball moving. We're in uh, a very deep rut. And the basic problem is that there's just no conversation by our media, 
or by our politicians about how to get out of it. Thanks for joining me today, John. Thank you. And that's it for today's show. This is On the Ground, onthegroundshow.org, Voices of Resistance from the nation's capital. Thank you to Chantel James, Thomas O'Rourke, and Lydia Curtis for their contributions to this show. You can check out all of our current and past shows on the website we maintain, onthegroundshow.org. And you can reach out to us and support us there as well. You can also let us know you like the show at On the Ground Show on Facebook, Twitter, or on patreon.com forward slash On the Ground Show. Our new podcast, On the Ground with Esther Averam, is on all your podcast platforms. Our new podcasts, our social media pages, and website all have a protest sign with green lettering that says On the Ground. The music we played this hour included Lil Baby, Killer Mike, and Tamika Mallory performing at the 63rd Grammy Awards. I'm Mr. Ivarum. Until next time, keep raising your voice. Peace. This is Esther Ivarum, producer and host of On the Ground, thanking you for listening and for being a part of our audience. And I'm asking you to please partner with us in keeping alive this independent grassroots news program from Washington, D.C. Your fully tax-deductible donation of as little as $3 a month will help us keep lifting up voices of activism and resistance to corporate power and corporate media. So please go to our page at patreon.com forward slash on the ground show. That's patreon, P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com forward slash on the ground show where we post the shows and bonus material. Or you can see all the ways to support, including end-of-the-year giving and PayPal on our website, which you know is onthegroundshow.org. Thank you.